Chapter 9, Pharma's Marketing and Bullying. Martha Rosenberg, in her book, Born with a Junk Food Deficiency, published in 2015, wrote, One of the benefits, if you are Pfizer, with illegal marketing is that the bell once rung cannot be unrung. Doctors and patients remember the illegal messages just like that of Neurontin treating bipolar disorder, even if they are disavowed and found false. So despite the fact that Neurontin is approved only for epilepsy and postherpetic neuralgia, which is pain after shingles, it made Pfizer $387 million in 2008, and over 90% of sales were for its illegally marketed off-label uses. We overpay the big pharmaceutical corporations for their drugs with tax and insurance funds, and then they use the money to carpet bomb the internet and media with marketing. They hijack legitimate advocacy groups and charities into this process with massive donations. They create some of these organizations out of whole cloth to promote sales. Direct-to-consumer ads blanket the media. These are illegal almost everywhere else in the world. The corporations promote virtually any drug that sells. There's little regard for the side effects of medications or the patient anxiety when they are labeled with a diagnosis. We now use medications without legitimate medical use for a vast swath of the population. I believe we should use drugs solely for sick people where they have some chance of having more utility than toxicity. Even for these patients, we must do our best to not let our attempts to help cause harm. Corporate marketing rules the internet. Forests of junk ads and ghost-written articles are used to tout diseases and expensive remedies. Legitimate websites sell links, which the companies use for advertising. The ubiquitous corporate presence gets rewritten and shifts daily. It encourages the consumption of any profitable therapy. The WebMD Health Network operates multiple websites, including WebMD.com, Medscape, which is a well-liked medical news site, MedicineNet, eMedicine, eMedicine Health, RxList, TheHeart.org, and Medscape Education. This group collectively has revenues of $705 million a year in 2016 and dominates medical information sources. According to Senator Chuck Grassley's investigations, the WebMD consortium is, quote, shilling for the pharmaceutical companies and is a source of pseudomedicine and misinformation. Here are the first words of one of the WebMD pages, quote, if you have bipolar disorder, the right medications can be like a pair of eyeglasses. Bipolar distorts your view of yourself and the world, but the medicine can help you to see things clearly again. A talented copywriter must have written this, but these medicines are of limited utility and are phenomenally overused. There is no objective test for bipolar disorder, no way to rule it out, no physical cause has ever been identified, and the drugs are uniformly harmful to health. Hippocrates.com is a favored application for physicians to look up drugs and patient care information. Two Stanford students founded it in 1998. According to the website, half of U.S. physicians and a million members use it. Hippocrates bombards users with specifically targeted ads. 
the drug makers supplied at least 70% of their 104 million in revenues in 2010, and the top 20 drug companies all buy ads. A former CEO, Kirk Lovener, described its profitability in a 2009 interview. He said Hippocrates was a, quote, gold mine because of industry spending. They list the biotech industry, including pharmaceutical and device companies, as business partners on their website. People with ties to corporations manage the site. For example, Rosemary Crane, a former executive for Bristol Myers Squibb and Johnson & Johnson, was CEO for a period. Despite all this, the site's reputation is still excellent. Drug companies now supply the lion's share of the patient advocacy group's money. These were mostly created in good faith by idealists, and we still hold them in high regard. They exist for nearly every malady from heart disease to Alzheimer's to mental health. People who have the disease and their family members often staff them, and many work for little or no pay. Consumers trust their websites. But now, industry dominates agendas because the advocacy people have accepted funds. They additionally get expert guidance and political influence, but the price is giving up their control. The corporations expand, quote, awareness programs. They lobby Congress for early approval of cures. And they improve corporate images and they sell drugs. It seems like a bargain to the nonprofit leaders. The industry builds some of these societies from scratch, which is known as, quote, astroturfing. These look like grassroots groups, but corporations fund, rent offices, and dictate agendas for them. They claim to represent the public, but are corporate propaganda machines. In the U.S. and many other countries, some of these practices are illegal, and the Federal Trade Commission has the power to impose hefty fines. Enforcement is difficult, however. Janine Linzer, in her book, The Danger Within Us, published in 2017, described how the companies maneuver advocacy groups and manipulate patients into giving testimonials before Congress. Quote, It's a well-known path of high farce. Industry effectively launders its money through third-party organizations, and everyone acts as if it isn't happening. The process is akin to Congress inviting only the winners of million-dollar lotteries to testify about the, quote, benefits of gambling. Losers are not invited. Selection is everything, and as the saying goes, dead men tell no tales. What is not reported is equally as important as what is reported. Although well-established medications have risks, poorly tested new ones are mostly complete failures. When adequate studies are never performed, the facts are never discovered. Few physicians and even fewer patients understand how difficult it is to prove a drug is worthwhile. The following groups advance industry agendas. Eli Lilly, the Zyprexa manufacturer, bankrolled phony consumer groups that blasted the Kentucky State Capitol when the Medicaid program attempted to dump their expensive drug. There were emails, letters, hearings, and demonstrations. Lilly funded the whole uproar. Citizens for Better Medicare started in 1999, yet somehow raised and spent $65 million fighting drug regulation in the 1999-2000 election. Tim Ryan, formerly the advertising director for Pharma, P-H-R-M-A, which is the lobbying group for drug makers, was the executive director. He supported industry issues with millions of dollars in advertising. 
This society seems to have vanished from the Internet as of 2020. Seniors Coalition and the United Seniors Association supported the disastrous 2003 law prohibiting the federal government from negotiating Medicare drug prices with public relations firms, which also represented the major drug companies, funded these groups. Neither had an office address or a membership list. Seba Novartis, the manufacturer of Ritalin, gave children with attention deficit disorder, a group with the acronym CHADD, $1 million. This was a secret until a PBS documentary made it public. A daft SIBA representative said that Chad was, quote, essentially a conduit for SIBA and Ridlin. In 2015, the industry supplied 27% of the organization's total revenue of $2.6 million. Chad was responsible for much of the lobbying to include ADHD as a disability under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. The National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, claims on its website to be the, quote, nation's largest grassroots mental health organization dedicated to building better lives for millions of Americans affected by mental illness. They say they have over a thousand chapters in the U.S. U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley investigated them for not disclosing their pharmaceutical company funding. He forced them to release documents confirming that the industry provided a majority of their revenues. They now list their corporate donors on their website, including Lilly, GSK, Abbey V, Allergan Pharma, which is the pharmaceutical company's lobbying organization, and Hospital Corporation of America Foundation. Their focus is to encourage psychiatric medication use. NAMI's website says, quote, even though most people can be successfully treated, less than half of the adults in the U.S. who need services and treatment get the help they need. They allegedly coordinate their efforts with the drug companies to promote industry-favorable legislation. Alzheimer's Society of the U.K. has over 2,500 employees, 10,500 volunteers, and annual revenues of £97.9 million. There is a similar but smaller group in Canada. The families of demented patients do not have this kind of money to donate. This group receives revenue from multiple drug companies and passes out about $100 million a year in research funding. The UK Alzheimer's Society pushed a program that paid doctors a commission for each patient that they identified with Alzheimer's disease. This is an irresistible incentive. It frightened many people needlessly into believing they were becoming senile and promoted ineffective, phenomenally costly medications. In 2008, J.R. Gilstad and collaborators reviewed Aricept, one of the Alzheimer's medications, and found that it had a limited benefit, if any. But the Alzheimer's Society ads proclaimed, quote, Don't wait. Ask your doctor about Aricept. When they tried this tactic in the U.S., the FDA informed them it was illegal. The manufacturers of the sleep drugs Sonata and Ambien, plus the maker of the opioid OxyContin, together fund much of the National Sleep Foundation's budget. This nonprofit has sold a lot of addictive medications. Alliance for Patient Access is an opioid lobby associated with over two dozen pharmaceutical companies, including Pfizer and Purdue Pharma. Their narrative is that the legitimate pain patient should not pay the price for the fight against drug abuse. 
The fake charities used to donate copays for the phenomenally overpriced drugs are even worse. This seems like a generous idea, but it allows corporations to harvest massive insurance payments and gouge insurance almost without limit. Here's how it works. If the physicians waive the copays, it is a fraud because it violates the insurance contract. The drug companies cannot pay this money directly because it would be bribery. Medicare patients cannot legally accept a donation from a foundation owned by a pharmaceutical company. These, quote, charities skirt the Medicare anti-kickback laws by concealing the donor's identities. The last vestige of common sense, the patient's displeasure with drug costs, vanishes. These, quote, patient assistant foundations give away $700 million a year to fund drugs that often cost more than $5,000 a year per prescription. Quote, charities like these cost the manufacturer nothing because the increase in sales is so much more than the money donated for a copay assistance program. Later, after the insurance companies who are footing the bill have to raise their rates, we all pay. Abby V and Johnson & Johnson are among the companies that play this game. Direct-to-consumer ads, DTC ads, brainwash patients to pressure their doctors for brand names. Physicians usually obey rather than wasting time arguing, but almost everyone understands that these ads are a malignancy. Jerry Avron, MD, wrote in the New York Times, quote, This advertising promotes only the most expensive products. It drives prescription costs up and also encourages the, quote, medicalization of American life. The sense that pills are needed for most everyday problems that people notice and many that they don't. Other experts agree. The early 1980s, before the DTC ad strategy developed, was a much more innocent and idealistic era. The following industry executives said that these ads hurt patients. These are quotes from 1982. The first is Charles Hagen, VP, American Home Products, and he said, Direct-to-consumer advertising would make patients extraordinarily susceptible to product promises. An Abbott Laboratories chairman said, We believe direct advertising to the consumer introduces a very real possibility of causing harm to patients who may respond to advertisements by pressuring physicians to prescribe medications that may not be required. Charles Collins of Smith, Klein & French said, Advertising would have the objective of driving patients into doctors' offices seeking prescriptions. In the mid-1980s, a Madison Avenue advertising agency hired by Merrill Dow marketed Seldane, a new antihistamine. The FDA required ads to contain comprehensive warnings about side effects. The ad agency got around this by not explicitly naming the drug. They said, quote, ask your doctor about how to treat allergies without sleepiness, which was the drug's selling point. The campaign's enormous success spawned imitators. Then, by the late 1990s, court decisions allowed ads that had only a brief mention of side effects. In 2001, the industry spent $2.4 billion on DTC ads. By 2008, $4 billion, and by 2016, $5.6 billion. These ads are now dramatic, frightening, and ubiquitous. They are only a portion of the drug maker's marketing budget. By 2016, $5.5 billion a year was also being thrown directly at doctors to promote drugs. This is more than the yearly budget for educating all U.S. medical school students.
Only the U.S. and New Zealand ever approved DTC drug marketing, but the ads show up everywhere U.S. television is broadcast, which is most of the world. In many countries, they run as filler because local advertisers do not have enough money to buy all the spots. Here's how the system fits together. After the corporations fund and organize biased disease studies that claim a drug works, they put out press releases about how common and devastating the ailment is. The charity's disease monger, and in the U.S., DTC ads hawk the purported cures. Prescribing guidelines contrived by bought-off academics add fuel to the fire. For example, GlaxoSmithKline combined press releases about social anxiety with aggressive direct-to-consumer marketing about how Paxil relieved it. They never mention that the drug creates intolerable restlessness in several percent of users and that they occasionally kill themselves. In 2004, New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer sued GlaxoSmithKline. Internal documents obtained at Discovery showed that the company leaders were aware of Paxil's tendency to cause suicide. Implausibly, in 2020, the FDA still approves Paxil for social anxiety.